Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is a tech founder, early stage investor, and seasoned NED. In addition to roles as chairman of UOMI and strategic board advisor for Venture Studio from Crisis, he is also a founding member at VC firm ImpactX Capital and Code Untapped, which aims to help coding and tech professionals from minority and ethnic backgrounds access roles in financial services. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And now it's time to welcome Izechi Britton, MBE, to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing, Serena? I'm very good. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. That's all right. That's all right. The, the intro was pretty good, but there's a few few new ones to add to it. Since <laughs> we uh, you mentioned a strategic advisor to the board for Venture Studio by Crisis, that's still the case. But I'm also now a Crisis trustee, so I'm a trustee on the board of Crisis. And as of April, I'll be joining CFIT, so the UK Centre for Finance, Innovation and Technology, as their first CEO. So there's a whole bunch of things that are happening at this moment in time. That sounds incredibly exciting. And, and that's definitely something that I noticed whilst researching all the various roles that you've taken, that you do have an incredibly expansive and impressive CV. So obviously you've had jobs in, in the corporate sector and, you know, those are more, I guess, like conventional roles, which, so how did you transition from going to that to then founding your own businesses and now you know you're the founder of, of of a company which aims to help other people get into tech from minority groups so how have you managed to you know go into the various areas that you're in and, and what has motivated you to do that all right so to give give your listeners some context you know so as you said i started off in the corporate world so lehman brothers um, and credit Suisse is a software developer um so lehman i was in credit derivatives, risk and pricing technology. And then I moved to Switzerland and joined Credit Suisse in equity derivatives, risk and pricing technology. From there, I moved back to the UK and co-founded Neighbor, which was um, a FinTech where I was founder, co-founder and CTO. From Neighbor, I left and started Code Untapped, which is the organization you're talking about, which was um, very much around bringing together underrepresented technologists and connecting them to enterprise organizations. But at the same time, I was approached to join ImpactX Capital, the venture capital fund invests in diverse and underrepresented entrepreneurs, where I became a founding member, a principal investor and the CTO for the fund. Since then, a whole host of other things have happened, which we can talk about, but I'm also now transitioning out of those roles into um, the, new, the first CEO of CFIT, so the UK Centre for Finance, Innovation and Technology, which is a private not-for-profit backed by treasury so as you said i've worked in private sector i've worked in the startup sector i've worked in almost what ed tech we could or career early careers i've worked in venture capital i'm an advisor to crisis so that's the charity sector as well i'm on their board of trustees and now i'm in a not-for-profit well i will be in a not-for-profit backed by government funding so it literally it's hard to quantify just you know how many different sectors i've been involved in and worked in so the question you initially asked was about 
going from the banking world, the private sector into startups and creating my own businesses. I think I'd always wanted to, right? In fact, I never really wanted to go into the corporate world in the first place. Initially, it sounds funny now, but I wanted to create my own video game studio, right? I wanted to code video games. That's what I always really wanted to do. Everything I do now is so far from that, it's unreal, but that's, that's where I really started. But I couldn't. I, I didn't have the skill set. My qualifications were pretty poor. I went to a really bad state school um, where the 5 to 8 C pass rate was awful. Like 14% um, of kids got 5 8 C GCSE um, at the school I went to. Um, so I had to re- I end up resetting my A levels, all sorts. So I just I found it very, very hard to get into the video game industry. It wasn't as easy as it is now, where, you know, pretty much all the information you could ever imagine is out there. Back then, it was a lot harder. You had to build your own portfolio or be a triple A star student. It just wasn't going to happen. But what I did was a sandwich course at university where I had to work, do a year placement. And actually, the organization that gave me a chance was Lehman Brothers, which was an international American investment bank. So that's how I ended up in the corporate world in the first place, um, was through that route. And I spent 10 years in investment banking technology and I really enjoyed it. I loved it. I I thought it was great, but I never lost that spark or desire to do something for myself, build a business, create something really interesting. And actually, whilst um, Lehman was going under in 2009 during the crisis, uh, and we were kept on by PwC as they ran Lehman Brothers in administration, I was actually trying to build a startup idea at that moment in time with a friend of mine called um, Leandale, I think we were calling it. And it was supposed to be a uh, protein shake uh, vending machine business. Didn't quite get off the ground, but taught me a lot about some of the challenges of trying to start a company, especially trying to do it during the middle of a financial crisis. Probably not the best time as a first time founder to try to build a vending machine company. But it was after that that I joined the Credit Suisse and again, You know, I loved it. I was a contractor, which was actually a very deliberate decision because as a contractor, it's almost a first step towards becoming an entrepreneur because you, you know, you run a limited company, you have to negotiate your rates, you change roles on a regular basis. You basically have clients instead of employers. So for me, it was almost a way to introduce myself to this idea of building a company. And whilst I was at Credit Suisse, I was there for five years, absolutely loved it, but was starting to get itchy feet a little bit. I still had this desire to create something to work for myself. And my initial plan actually was to try and set up some kind of remote consultancy so I could sit on the beach in Thailand with a laptop, right? And just work remotely. Didn't quite happen, but I started working on something else which had the really unsexy title of auto-escalating notification system for investment banks, right? It didn't quite work out. Uh, But whilst doing that, um, a, a friend of mine who I've known since my days at Lehman, a guy called Martin Ijehar, reached out to me about this idea for a peer-to-peer lending startup and he needed a CTO and he wanted me to join him. And I said, all right. I mean, that's a very condensed version of that story. There's <laughs> it's like a whole bunch of other things that happened during that time. But fundamentally, I agreed and um, started working on the back end to build this lending platform and we, we created Neighbor. Um, we launched that whilst still in full-time employment, started to scale down my time, went part-time, 
and then eventually had to make that decision is are we going to do this or not at which point i left switzerland left credit swiss moved back to the uk moved into my parents spare bedroom in lewisham um, didn't get paid for the next year and a half and, and we built neighbor and the rest is history really it definitely sounds like you have always had a certain kind of entrepreneurial spirit within yourself um, and so when you look at a business or are attracted to business what is it for you that motivates you to want to get involved is there something specific about you know each and every one of the opportunities and ventures that you go into that really gets you going basically yeah i'd say mission is core and actually i realized that about myself fairly recently i mean if you think about the protein shake vending machine business it was all about healthy healthy eating really helping people train exercise build the bodies that they're looking for and they want but are struggling to do so when we created neighbor it was an online lending company that integrated into payroll solutions to provide more affordable lending solutions so it was about giving people fairer access to finance when i created code untapped with jason halstead that was about giving underrepresented technologists a chance to connect with enterprise organizations and to really show them what they can do. We were doing that through hackathons and coding workshops, but it was also about increasing innovation and diversity in corporate organizations. When I joined ImpactX, that was about increasing diversity and, um, and innovation and equality in the venture capital world, giving, creating more wealth opportunities for people from diverse backgrounds, because it's massively unfair. Something like 90% of all venture capital goes to white founders, 0.24% goes to black founders, 0.02% goes to black female founders. If I had a thousand entrepreneurs in a room backed by venture capital, only two of them would be black, right? So again, mission. If I look at what I've done with um, crisis, I mean, the mission there is very, very clear. They're trying to end homelessness, right? And now CFIT as well, Center for Finance, Innovation and Technology. Their mission, or my mission now, is to make UK fintech number one globally, right? So there's always been a very, very strong mission focus in everything that I do. And then besides that, it's, you know, what's the opportunity for this to do something really quite interesting, to, to move the needle in some meaningful way? And what value do I bring? I have no interest joining something where I bring no value. I've been asked to advise private equity funds, to advise new venture funds, et cetera, et cetera, other startups, all sorts of companies. And often I look at it and I go, you don't need me. Um, I'm just a badge that you want, right? I'm, I'm not interested in that. I'm like, do I provide real value and do I see real opportunity for me here? And often I'll choose things because they're strategic. There are many, many, many good good things out there and great, great causes to support and the rest. Sometimes though, what I like to do is go, well, if I've done this here, I'd rather do something slightly different over here. A big part of me is I've always said, I don't want to spend the next five years doing what I spent the last five years doing. And weirdly, my, my career really tracks that, right? Um, and that wasn't actually deliberate. I haven't gone, oh, five years are up. It just seems to happen. I think it's one of the things I try to do and I say this a lot, is I try to make myself redundant. I try to ensure that the organization doesn't need me anymore. 
um, either because I've brought in automations or I've brought in good people or I've scaled it up to a certain degree. And if I look at it, you know, I was five years at Lehman, five years at Credit Suisse, four years or so at um, Neighbor. I've been with ImpactX for the last four and a half years. And now I'm moving on to the next section of my career with, with CFIT. So it, it's not been deliberate, but it's just worked out that way. And um, yeah, it certainly sounds like it's been quite an interesting journey for yourself. But, you know, you mentioned that you a big part of, of what you do is is giving advice and, and you do work as a chairman, but also a board advisor. So especially at this moment in time, businesses are facing something quite unique and interesting, you know, coming off the back of the pandemic, but also facing certain economic challenges uh, as, as we go into a recession. Is there, you know, a piece of advice that you're giving the businesses that you work with at this point in time that you think could be valuable to our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think the advice is pretty much the same that everyone's heard everywhere, right? Which is focus on cash flow and extending runway. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really difficult fundraising environment out there. Bear in mind, the types of companies I work with tend to be looking to raise money, right? So I'm not talking to I'm not talking about a FTSE 100 listed company here. I'm talking about typically fairly early stage startups. I know funds who are recommending startups to raise 36 months worth of capital, right? Because the environment is so uncertain over the next few years. So I'd say really double down on what is your what are your unit economics what is the revenue model for your business prove getting those proof points in starting to generate some real positive revenue for your company positive cash flow as well whilst extending that runway out managing your costs as efficiently as possible but also don't forget that in times of great upheaval there's also great opportunity out there so don't strip everything so far back to the bone that you can't take advantage of the opportunities as you see them because cash is king in these types of environments and those people who are in a position to make a move are the ones who are going to absolutely leapfrog everybody else especially for startups and and those businesses seeking investment it can be very easy to you know be reading the news every day and, and seeing all these big headlines talking about how businesses are are being impacted and and you know the cost of living crisis and all of these pretty negative ideas about what the world is going to look like over the next year and so naturally this is going to impact business confidence but do you think it's very important for businesses or business founders to remain confident even during as this period of uncertainty yeah absolutely i mean if you don't have confidence in your business model then what are you doing right I, i'm a big believer in that if you are not confident that your business model is working and you're an early stage startup either pivot or fold it up right return the capital to your investors let them recycle it and give it to someone else that, that's that's just a fundamental tenet of building a startup you need to be confident in yourself, in your team, your product, your vision. It doesn't mean to be unrealistic, but it's about confidence in what you're doing. And if you're not confident in it, figure out why you're not confident in it. You're like, well, again, why are you building this business if you, if you don't believe that this business is going to be successful? 
And I think that's the key thing. Get those proof points. You know, as a startup entrepreneur, you have really one job, and that is to figure out what your customers want. Yeah. Get product to your customer as quickly as possible, as cheaply as possible, in order to prove whether or not your thesis works. That's your job, right? And if you can do that quickly enough and generate enough proof points off the back of that, raising money becomes a lot easier. But hopefully you'll also start to generate some actual revenue. So for me, it's you've really got to focus on that. The UK is a very different place to the US. You know, you see these crazy growth type models in the US uh, work because the US is a homogeneous environment in the sense that you've got 300 million people all speak the same language. Similar regulatory environment across the entire country. The UK is not that market, right? You know, we have 66 million people. We have the we have Europe, the Europe on our doorstep, but that's becoming increasingly difficult to reach. We have the US as well, but that's a hard market for UK companies to tap into at an early stage. So these types of growth models just don't really work here. What you've got to focus on is building a strong revenue model that creates enough growth for your business so that you can raise money and then expand, right? If that's the way you're going to do things. But again, it comes back down to believing in your business model. If you don't believe in it, why are you here? Right. And that that's that's absolutely critical in terms of the way investors are operating within this uncertain time. Are investors or are you as an investor being particularly cautious right now? Or do business founders still have the right to be optimistic about achieving investment? So I'd say absolutely the market is being far more cautious. There are a lot of funds out there with a lot of capital available to them and they're holding back. I remember last year, one one investor describing it to me as any deal you make, you've got to bet your career on. <laughs> That's the environment at the moment, right? Because over the last 10 years, everyone was a genius. It, you know, in a rising market, you can bet on anything. Right now, it's really, really difficult. Why do you think people are going crazy about ChatGPT? It's another opportunity where there's so much hype at the moment that people feel they can throw money at it and get a return. And that's what they're desperate for at the moment. People need to be seen to be successful, especially in this game. Because if you think about the VC world, our returns don't kick in for 10 years, right? So no one knows if you're good at what you do for at least five and that's the cycle that we're in. So people need to see, have those things where they can point to quick wins, quick gains, quick exits. So it's, it's a it's a really interesting environment. But I would say there are investors still investing. There is a very strong focus on, as I said, unit economics, revenue models, strength of the core founders. And if you want evidence that the market's becoming more risk averse. You just have to look at the investment in black entrepreneurs, right? So we saw that during the pandemic, you know, post Black Lives Matter and everything else that happened, uh, investment in black entrepreneurs in the US increased by four times, right? And we saw similar patterns in the UK as well, actually. And what happened was we're in an environment where people were desperate for yield, desperate for growth, willing to take a risk. In the last year, investment in black entrepreneurs has fallen below pre-pandemic levels, right? It's really just dropped through the floor again. 
And again, what that tells you, you can use that as a proxy for risk appetite in the market. What that says is that black people, black entrepreneurs are still seen as a risk factor. And they're almost the canary in the coal mine. If you watch that investment, it will tell you everything you need to know about investors' risk appetite currently. And it's dropped through the floor. Unless, of course, you're a well-known founder with a celebrity brand. I mean, just look at um, the founder of uh, WeWork. He raised more money in his latest startup than every black founder in the US did that quarter. I think he raised about $370 million maybe been more than every black founder that year but there's a really interesting issue here which is that we're seen as a risk factor yet vcs are willing to double down on high-risk individuals provided they have a certain brand demographic look and feel to them that's yeah that's an incredibly surprising or maybe not even surprising but just sort of outrageous fact to hear um how how do we tackle this issue to get people from minority backgrounds into spaces where there there aren't really many people from those backgrounds in a way that is more sustainable yeah i you know we talk about this a lot and it's very very clear that the established venture capital funds are just not that interested in investing in black founders all right don't get me wrong, some do, not all of them. There, you know, there are some fantastic organizations out there like Local Globe, for example, do some brilliant work. They're actually um, my co-deal partner, um, deal principal at Impact Taxi Bomb Bajeda has become their first black female partner actually at Local Globe. So they, they do a great job and they've got a strong focus on Africa at the moment as well. But for the most part, they're just not that interested. The only way realistically to get more investment into diverse entrepreneurs is through having more diverse fund managers and that's it does it's whether you're black whether you're female it's the same thing if you look at most diverse founders that initial check came from another diverse investor right where it didn't it's usually because they knew the investor in some way shape or form right so the only reason that individual was willing to take a risk on them was because they knew this person and had known them for some time. And there was a track record built up between those people. So for those of us who don't have those types of relationships, it's almost impossible. Now, I know the thing is, is you're going to hear non-diverse founders go, yeah, but it's almost really, it's impossible for us as well. And it is, it's hard for everybody. That's, that's the thing that gets lost in translation. The difference is, is at least you're going to get in the room right? And at least you're going to have an opportunity. The minute a diverse entrepreneur walks in, there's a whole host of assumptions that are made. The minute they see that individual, whether you're a black entrepreneur, whether you're a female entrepreneur, a whole load of assumptions and questions suddenly come into your mind that might not come into your mind if you're meeting a non-diverse founder, even if they don't have some of these really tight networks and connections that you're accustomed to. So yes, it's a challenge for other groups as well, but it's a different challenge. And I think what you've just said definitely points at it being, you know, a deeply systemic issue, which really needs to be sorted from the roots up. Um, in terms of the tech space and the tech sector, what trends have you noticed in terms of diversity in this space and, and why have you been motivated to 
alleviate some of these issues within within the tech space specifically? Well, you know, the tech space is really interesting because on the one hand, technology is one of the truly meritocratic options out there, right? Spaces, because as a developer, all the information you need is out there. You can go onto Wikipedia, YouTube, Plural Sites, W3 Schools, and learn everything you need to know about coding, right? You can go on to um, GitHub and gain access to open source libraries and figure out how different things have worked or even contribute yourself. You can go on Stack Overflow and get answers to any question you can imagine around technology. So the barriers to entry for technology are now so low other than just do you have the competency to be able to learn this stuff and to apply it? The information is there. There are, there are literally no gatekeepers to that information. It really comes down to are there gatekeepers to the roles? Now, what we are seeing is that there are more and more diverse technologists coming out and joining firms at the ground level. I speak to a number of companies when we were launching Code Untapped, and they would say, look, we've got absolutely no problem getting diverse graduates. That's, that's not our issue. Our issue is getting hold of diverse technologists with more than five years experience. Now, that's a really interesting question, right? Because if there's no shortage of diverse grads out there in the technology world, well, where are all the diverse technologists with more than five years experience? What happens to them? Why have they self-selected out of the system? Why are they so hard to find? Is it that it's only in the last five years that this batch of diverse grads coming through? Maybe, right? However, what you do find is that at senior levels, there seems to be an almost lack, a complete lack of diverse candidates other than Asian and Indian, right, in the technology world. And you definitely see there's almost not... It is almost a glass ceiling where particularly black technologists tend to say, I'm not interested in continuing on this corporate ladder. I'm going to step out. I'm going to become a contractor. Why? Because I get paid better and I don't have to deal with the nonsense that we see in trying to climb this ladder. But that creates a self-reinforcing paradigm, right? Because what happens is, is that senior leadership don't see senior black technologists and if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? That's, you know, it's a common, commonly held phrase. But also, if you're in a position where you're employing, recruiting, promoting individuals, in the back of your mind, you'll be going, well, I don't really see many senior black technologists. Can, can you really do the job? So you've got that downward pressure, then you've got self-selection out anyway, which just reinforces the pattern. So we just see this exodus of senior black talent in organizations. And then when we look at the startup world, what we're seeing is, is that especially in the fintech space, we see a lot of white founders coming from the banking space, potentially bringing along um, diverse technologists into technology roles. And that's an interesting pattern behavior that we're seeing. And hopefully, as we start to see more exits of these types of companies, we start to see more senior black technologists exiting out of this space with capital, we might start to see more diverse black run startup tech startups spinning up. And actually, we're already seeing it, you know, ImpactX, I look at our pipeline, which is over 2000 companies, and there is a very high number of those are black run technology startups with black technologists in the role. So we are seeing 
some trends and some shifts happening in that space, which is very, very positive. But I would still say there is absolutely a lack of senior black technologists out there. And that's one of the things that attracted me to my role at CFIT, right? Which is, yes, we're here to drive, um, to remove barriers to scaling up UK fintech. But one of the things that we're looking at is skills and skills pathways, um, no placements and the rest of it. And what can we do to push more diverse tech talent through that route as well? So there's some real strong opportunities there to continue to drive on that diversity agenda. That's incredibly interesting to hear, especially hearing that, you know, so many black technologists are ending up working for themselves and then and then that leads to a lack of role models within those senior positions within companies. And so in the same vein as that, do you think that the pandemic and the rise of, you know, people working for themselves and become consultants and, you know, that that surge has now led to you know, inadvertently led to, I guess, an issue where there are less black role models in those senior positions in the tech sector, but also in a variety of sectors. Would you say that's true? It's an interesting question. I can't really quote the facts on that one. So I haven't seen statistics, but it wouldn't surprise me if that was the case. But uh, I don't know is the honest answer, right? I'll I'll just tell you, I don't know. But um, one thing I have seen is definitely a rise in in companies, startups, people approach taking going down the consultancy route post pandemic. And the fact that they're working remotely has really enabled that because it's allowed them to use their time more efficiently um, in other ways. You know, I, I credit a lot of what I've been doing recently, a lot of the opportunities I've had with the pandemic because instead of having to travel across london to this meeting that meeting that maybe have four or five meetings in a day and spend five hours just traveling back and forth i can have 10 meetings in a day right so that suddenly doubles my efficiency and that might be across a portfolio of activities all of a sudden i'm able to to multitask in a way that just wasn't possible i'm not knocking office working or anything like that that's not what i'm here to do but that flexibility has given rise to a whole new generation of entrepreneur that may not have had those, that opportunity beforehand because they had no choice. They were in an office environment. They were there nine to five, nine to six, nine to eight, depending on where they were and had no opportunity to explore other things. Some organizations are very forward thinking and I was able to build neighbor in my spare time whilst working at Credit Suisse as a contractor, right? And I was able to do a lot of that because of the nature of my work and how I operated. So I'm, I actually think you're definitely going to see a whole new wave of consultants, entrepreneurs coming out of this, working in ways with business models that just would have been unheard of two, two or three years ago. Now, I, I just want to touch on the tech sector in the UK a little bit more broadly. And last year, the government claimed that the UK could be the next Silicon Valley. Do you think that the UK tech scene has that potential? I think the UK tech scene has the talent. There is no doubt in that. And I think it's a laudable aim as well, right? I think we have the talent, we have the capabilities, we have the ambition. So why not? I think the biggest issue for the UK 
tech center, um, tech sector is access to finance. It really is, right? It's the ability to get um, early stage funding and scale up funding that allows technologists to, or founders just to build big companies and it's access to markets. As I said, the biggest advantage that the US has is that they have a huge population that all speak English and all have very similar wants and needs and desires, right? The UK is a very small, is a small country in comparison. Economically, we're extraordinarily, we punch way above our weight in terms of the size of our population base, right? But if you're talking about building technology businesses that need to then scale up, the UK is a particularly small base. You have to be able to go internationally and achieving that can be quite difficult. And the level of funding that you require to grow in that way is significant. And that's where there's a real gap in the UK. You know, when, when you're starting to get to those rounds where you're looking to raise 100 million, 200 million, 300 million, it gets quite difficult to do that in the UK. This is why you tend to see more startups in, in Britain selling out early because that journey from Series C up to IPO is really hard. Whereas in the US, the amount of funding that is available is just colossal, right? And you have all these mega funds, largely um, because of the amount of venture capital that comes from the pension funds industry in the US dwarfs what we see in the UK, right? Um, you also get a lot of sovereign backed funds putting huge amounts of capital into the US. And it just, again, you see this issue where a lot of startups in the UK get backed by American investors at that scale up stage, which then brings them over to the US and then they list on the NASDAQ instead of on the FTSE or the AIM, right? So there's a real issue in the UK with access to late stage capital. Um, don't get me wrong, there's a problem of access to early stage as well. We have very risk averse culture in the UK, which is also a problem because startups can and will fail. You know, you look at the stats, people say 90% startups fail. That's not strictly true. The actual number is 60% of startups won't go on to raise another round of financing. And if you look at your financing goes seed, series A, series B, series C, series D, that effect compounds. So that over time, if you have a portfolio of say 50 companies, after about three or four rounds of financing and that cumulative dropout rate, you may only have about eight companies left, right? So that's where those stats really come from. And that access to finance as you're growing is absolutely critical. And, and we lack that in this country. And that's part of the, of the problem. And then again, it's also why you tend to see a certain type of entrepreneur succeeding because without access to those contacts, either I went to school with these people or my dad's on the board of, or my uncle does X, Y, Z, it's very, very hard to get access to that late stage financing. So you just don't have that, that network, that track record that they're looking for. So that again, they can de-risk themselves and take a bet on you. Sadly, that, that brings us to the final part of the podcast. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Joel Dando News Centre to bring you the Good News Postcard. Your question today comes from Elena, age 11. Hi, my name is Elena and I'm part of the Yildandu New Centre Piafred School. My question is, if you weren't a business leader, what would you like your job to be and why? Okay, brilliant question. So Elena, 
Great question. If I wasn't a business leader, what would I be and why? I'd be in the musical industry, right? Because my favorite thing in the world is to listen to Hamilton, um, the play by um, Lin-Manuel. I think it's absolutely incredible. And the first time I saw it, seeing all these amazing black and diverse artists performing and singing, and I, I don't sing, I don't perform, but it makes me wish I could. And if when I was a kid, Hamilton had been a thing, I may have taken a completely different pathway. So 100% I'd be on stage, in the theatre, singing and dancing. That's what I'd be doing. Thanks for that answer. And, you know, there's there's always time to to go into stage shows um, over the next year. <laughs> who, who knows, that could be the next business venture. We are Business Leader magazine. And so this question is, what makes a great business leader? Oh, what makes a great business leader? Um, I think empathy and decisiveness, right? I think it's really important that you empathize and understand your clients, your customers, your people, the problem that you're trying to solve and be passionate for that. But you also need decisiveness. You need to be able to make decisions and stick by them. Some of those decisions might be uncomfortable, but they need to be made, right? So empathy and, deci and decisiveness are my two, two critical aspects in a lead. And if you have to choose one, I'm afraid you have to go with decisiveness because decisions need to be made and that's your job fundamentally. Great. Thank you so much for joining us as HE. And do you have any final words for our audience and where they can find you online on social media? Yeah, I mean, it's very easy to find me. You can Google me. You, um, I'm always available on LinkedIn. It's often the best way to find me. If you are going to reach out to me, please let me know how you knew about me You know, through the podcast so I know to accept. I can't promise I'll always respond, but, you know, I might get back to you eventually, okay? So, um, and you can find me on um, Twitter, Instagram, all over the place. But watch this space, keep an eye out, and watch the UK fintech scene going forwards because we're going to be making some big changes, okay?